0: Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your
1: life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. On Twitter at Common Good Talk. Common Good Talk. I got it right today. I'm on the streak (laughs) has begun. You can find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. Happy Wednesday, man. How you doing? I'm pretty tired. pretty tired. We're back. Yeah. yeah. We're, and we're back.
2: I mean, that was never not the answer. I was trying to be creative for a couple of weeks there. I'm just going <laughs> to own it. I'm just synony- gonna,
1: before you just use synonyms uh, for tired.
2: Exhausted. Yes. Uh, Fatigue.
1: Feeling lethargic today. Lethargic, right.
2: I might have mono.
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today. I want to jump in on the political end of the spectrum, but here's the conversation I want to have. Uh, The importance of words and beyond that, the importance of truth telling. And when we lose um, the the trust of people that we're telling the truth, uh, what that does to our culture. And and I think of this in terms of our our culture overall, but also our church culture. So let me give you two stories on either end of the political spectrum just to highlight this. The first is out of The Washington Post. This is from August 12th. Uh, The headline reads this President Trump. In 928 days, which is how long he has been in office, uh, it, at when this article was written, in 920 day, 928 days, he has made 12,019 false or misleading claims. And the article goes on to talk about they have this fact checker database that analyzes, categorizes, and tracks every suspect statement the president has uttered. And so, on April 26, he he made it over the ten thousand. Uh, False claim mark And has only been growing Surprised by that or does that number seem low (laughs) No comment (laughs) No comment. (laughs) On the other end of the (laughs) political spectrum uh, A story out of The National Review but this one has been making Its way around Uh, So right now you've got the Democrats And they've got all these different uh, Candidates who are trying to make a name for themselves Trying to get in And so uh, On uh, August 9th which was just a couple weeks ago Both uh, Kamala Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren tweeted about the anniversary anniversary can you say that word for me anniversary <laughs> thank you for Christianity today oh <laughs> uh, boy, that's, a, that's a double whammy for you the anniversary of the death of Michael Brown you might remember Michael Brown Ferguson Missouri uh, there was the shooting with the police officer Darren Wilson uh, and it started this whole movement and in fact I believe Black Lives Matter came out of that and The whole hands up, don't shoot. And the original story was that Michael Brown, completely innocent, had nothing to, you know, there was no altercation, had his hands up, got shot by a white police officer. And uh, but the Obama administration in 2015 wrote a lengthy report, their their DOJ, their Department of Justice, uh, debunking that and saying, no, it was a lot more um, nuanced. There was a struggle. Michael Brown actually reached for the officer's gun. And uh, they actually said it was more or less justified, a uh, tragic, but justified. And so uh, on the anniversary, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren both tweeted about this. Elizabeth Warren wrote five years ago, Michael Brown was murdered by a white police officer in Ferguson. Michael was unarmed, yet he was shot six times. I stand with activists and organizers who continue to fight for justice for Michael We must confront systemic racism and police violence head on. And so there's been this uproar from the other side going, wait, that's not true either. Uh, It's not accurate. Uh, You're not portraying accurately what even the Obama administration said. Here's what actually happened. Uh, So both sides of the aisle going, man, if we don't hold tightly uh, to accuracy and truth, then then we're on a really slippery slope. Uh, So both of those, I throw them in your lap. That's a lot. Uh, What do you
2: think about that? I I do want to make sure to say, too, that you got to remember there was a second DOJ report in 2015 Mm -hmm. that found like legitimate systematic misconduct in the Ferguson Police Department. So
1: for sure. I'm just talking about that. That particular incident, though, came out and said. It's not exactly what it was made to be in the beginning.
2: Well, and and uh, again, even in, and I'm in a nine-minute segment, that, that's painting with a broad brush, too, though. When he, there, I, I think the grievances in Ferguson are more legitimate simply than, oh, well, these politicians tweeted something that's just not true, and we need to be careful about what we say. I think it's actually a lot more complicated than that, and that is part of the DOJ reports. So I, I think to not include that actually is also potentially dangerous, to not identify that there was like some deeply rooted systemic stuff that— that people rightfully i think had a problem with so, sure. so that's tied into it
1: absolutely i i'm talking about these tweets from both presidential candidates followed by millions of people calling it a murder of an unarmed guy without any context is is inflammatory uh, and president trump lying all the time to, uh, for his own purposes is equally as inflammatory and both of them are dangerous
2: okay well let's let's uh take an interesting tack here you, can you say that all of Trump's misstatements are for his own personal gain or is he just accidentally wrong sometimes Probably like both. even but that's what I'm saying. Even that yep. statement. Oh, Trump says all these wrong things for his own gain. That in, That is in itself inflammatory a little bit. Right. So like how do we it's an interesting conversation about words while you and I are speaking words. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I you know well, mean? Like into a microphone. Words. Right. Yep. And I wonder you know, like you mentioned, so with Harris and Warren, like oh, they just said this without any context. We're like, but that is also what Twitter is, right? And I'm not saying there isn't, you know, something politically charged behind what they're saying. But which
1: interestingly, this report about Trump's false claim says that over 18 percent of his false claims
2: on Fact Checker come from his tweets, his he, own personal tweets. Yeah, well, and, and just some of the highlights: about one fifth of these claims are about immigration. Uh, Trump has falsely claimed 186 times that the U.S. economy today is the best in history. Trump has falsely said 162 times that he passed the biggest tax cut in history. Uh, Trump, I mean, there's just that kind of stuff to me uh, is for some reason a little more black and white than than the Ferguson stuff because there's so there just seems like so many more layers in that. And mm-hmm. uh, I do appreciate that you're sort of bringing you know opposite ends of the aisle here in that regard. To, to I think your point is words matter, um, but I also think that when we say Joel, "just follow the facts," is a little bit like mm-hmm. saying. Oh, the Bible clearly says, which we've tackled that topic before. Sometimes this pie in the sky, I uh, just got to be about the facts. Uh, I, I think it, it, it doesn't honor the complexity of some of these stories that require, I think, a very close reading from multiple sources. And that, that gets a little tricky because, of course, I think at the end of the day, we all want facts. Yep. The challenge isn't that we just have a bunch of people deceiving. I think it's sometimes we think, I don't know where to go to get the facts, which maybe that's a bigger indictment on what media has become in a right. modern age where it's actually less about <laughs> being right and more about being first. Yep. You know? And I guess you, I think you make a wonderful point. So
1: take the Ferguson one, if nothing else, it's extremely complex and extremely, like you said, I think you're a hundred percent right about that, which raises to me even um, more, I guess, disappointments A weird, weird world, weird word, but I'll use it. Disappointment that presidential candidates would just kind of say would, would take it down to 140 characters and use it. Um, you know, without acknowledging the complexity, I get that. That's how Twitter works. I no, have two eighty now too.
2: So, <laughs> but Let's. maybe
1: don't use Twitter to talk about that. Uh, the same way that just about every time President Trump tweets, I go, why,
2: why use Twitter
1: for that? Why use? And no, because it,
2: th- we're talking about it
1: now, that's exactly. Why. <laughs> I think on both ends of the spectrum, uh, it's words, it's social media being used to build something rather than. Um, yeah, and I just I worry for our culture. I feel like there's a big slippery slope here that we're probably already tumbling down. Yeah, uh, where truth doesn't necessarily matter, uh, but instead our versions of the truth or our stories are used to advance something that we're trying to advance. And I worry that we do that in churches too, not just politics. We do that all over the place.
2: Well, and I I think that it. I mean, probably even the article with Warren and Harris. The challenge is: to, would it be mindful that we we would be mindful to use our words to build up rather than destroy. And sometimes things need to be destroyed. I mean, to be fair, sometimes systemic oppression needs to just be burned to the ground, you know, and that, that I think you can't just always say like, well, look at the bright side. Sometimes stuff needs to be called out for what it is, but it does feel like the vast majority of what we see in social media is so often, condemning someone else or tearing someone else down. Right. Or, and I, you know, I think as a as a trend, uh, that can lead to some very dangerous places.
1: Absolutely. So jumping into the deep end of the pool here, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can also always call us at 312-660-2594. Coming up next, uh, Scott's, uh, Scott McKnight uh, wrote a, a blog over at Patheos entitled this, What do Jesus' actions reveal about violence we're going to discuss that next here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life welcome back to the common good am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. we're glad that you're joining us uh today as a reminder you can find us on facebook at the common good radio show that's the common good radio show well over at the Pathios blog Uh, It always an interesting site, a very wide spectrum of different viewpoints over at patheos.com. And one of their regular contributors there, uh, one of the people who runs the site, I believe, is Scott McKnight. And uh we've had Scott McKnight on the show before. We should have him regularly on the show. <laughs> and uh Scott, if you're listening, please come back. Yes, just call. Just call anytime. Whenever, yeah, <laughs> right. We'll stop whatever second we're, we're doing. If we're not here, we will call into it. <laughs> Uh Scott McKnight wrote a a really quick blog called What Do Jesus' Actions Reveal About Violence? So uh when when it comes to violence, uh what do what can we learn from Jesus? And um and it's interesting because McKnight starts it with, uh, with something really interesting. Let me, just re- let me just read you his first paragraph. He says, one can infer from one's actions, one's teachings. Let me read that again. One can infer from one's actions, one's teachings. Better yet, one's actions embody one's teachings. And even better yet, one's actions are one's teachings. It's called lived theology. Too often we assume the primary thing is one's ideas or one's theology or one's teachings, and actions are but applications of one's theology. That's not right. One's life is one's teachings. I meant to talk about violence, but that is there is so much in that paragraph chew on that with me what what, what do you hear in there
2: there's a uh, a quote that i've i've been using for probably a decade plus there's a guy named uh, neil anderson mm-hmm. and he said uh, people may not always live what they profess but they will always live what they believe oh wow that to me is so succinct yep. and so clear people may not always live what they say from stages or what their twitter feed looks like but they will always actually live what they believe and i think it's I mean, it's actually akin to a lot of what Jesus says, you yeah. know, like what comes out of your mouth versus what's really in your heart. Like all these things are, are actually pretty, pretty biblical. Yeah. It is pretty interesting. This isn't really what we're going to talk about, but like how easy it is now in a new digital age for us to personify a theology or a position that we maybe don't have anything about. Like it, it feels like in a lot of ways Christians in particular are pretty tempted to sort of catfish their audience. Yes. When you know what catfishing is? Yes, I do. This idea of like I'm going to I'm going to present a version of myself that isn't actually yeah. true, which is why in so many cases particularly of like abuses of power and when we see you know well-known leaders fall like ask their spouse, yes. ask, ask their kids and they're like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the people that really see them at their worst or see them at their most honest and, uh, yeah, that's a really tricky, I think it's really well said, not surprising. McKnight has a way of yeah, well, kind of drawing out these profound truths, but I, I always love that, that Anderson quote, people won't always live what they profess, but they will always live what they believe.
1: Yeah. It just reminds me not to pile on, but like uh, one of the strangest things with all the harvest stuff over the last couple of months to hear was people always like, uh, James McDonald's teachings were X and it, it was making such a big difference, this and that, right. and they were always troubled to wrestle with it. But that those closest were like, yeah, we kind of. <sighs> And just wrestling with that tension was always a little strange to hear from the outside and and it, this kind of shows it I don't know one's life is one's teachings like you and I I think it was yesterday or two days ago uh we talked about talking about prayer but struggling to pray and yeah, like, what right. does that say anyway well
2: i I think that's another important uh upside down western church struggle though is that we will we the collectively the royal we yep. i think will will suppress or stomach. Um, bad character, bad behavior if the outcome of good teaching or good yeah. leadership is present, which sh- shows in some ways kind of a misalignment of values, right? Yeah. And I think it comes from a good place. I've heard people literally say, not, I'm not speaking of any specific church, but they knew there were character issues, they knew there was behavioral patterns, but they said, yeah, but the teaching was, re-, like you were saying, yeah. it was reaching so many people or it was where the church was growing. So you start to justify in your head, yeah, I know that he's maybe like, Low-grade abusive, but man, look at look <laughs> yeah. at the impact it's making on our city, it's and I can really commiserate with that. Yeah. That's a pretty, that's a weirdly honorable thing to say, ah, all right, he's really mean and belligerent to people, but man, the sermons or the leadership or the thing he invented is really impacting people. So I right. guess I can excuse this for the sake of that, and uh, that's a really dangerous line of reasoning, but is. I totally get it. It is. So I'm going to chew on this one for a while. I like this whole
1: concept of lived theology and that Anderson quote. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about, McKnight does, about, so what do Jesus' actions, not just his words, what do his actions say about Jesus' beliefs about violence? Because, you know, as Christ followers, uh, we want to have the same uh, theology that Jesus did, right, when it comes to violence, when it comes to all sorts of other issues and so uh, M- mcknight latches onto ron Sider. Uh, if you've never read ron Sider's works um they're pretty groundbreaking especially around uh he wrote rich christians in an age of hunger and uh, if you want to be um if you want to be convicted pick up a ron cider book uh but cider wrote a book called if jesus is lord and he devotes a chapter to jesus's actions mcknight writes he examines Jesus' temptations, his refusal to become king, his triumphal entry, and his refusal of angels to defend him in Gethsemane. Uh, And Sider thinks that he writes the temptations, though possibly suggesting an anti-violent Messiah offers, are not clearly suggesting. So they move on. But he goes on to say... uh, They think he's the Messiah in John 6. This means a violent revolution for the masses of Galilee. Jesus rejects the offer. Triumphal entry, intense messianic hope is part of the narrative's context and scene. He stages an overt messianic act on a donkey. Humility, a peaceful Messiah. Refusing to call for angel help. He could end the violence against him with one prayer request. He refuses, he submits, and violence is done to him. And Sider says this by themselves these actions of Jesus would not be enough to say with certainty that Jesus clearly rejected all violence but his actions we have explored clearly do not affirm violence so for more clarity on what Jesus intended to teach he then in the next two chapters turns to Jesus's teachings all very interesting what do we do with the with the both the teachings and the actions in your opinion of Jesus that are Pretty overtly nonviolent.
2: Yeah, I, can I just rant yep, for a little bit? Here, you can. another article that our producer found, and uh, I wish we had more time. Maybe we'll talk about this another time yep. in depth because uh, it's over at Bible Gateway, which is a surprising place I yeah. think, for an article like this. Yep. But kind of list. I'll just give you the headings, and you can go read it for yourself. It says first, Jesus models the power of nonviolence, um, and then it goes on to talk about like the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says second, yep. Jesus speaks about the source of violence. Right, so he talks about. Um, You know, the the human heart being the place where these things begin. It says, here's the bad news of the human condition. Violence, like all sin, comes out of the human heart. Adultery is not caused externally by someone else's good looks. Greed is not caused externally by someone's money. Mm. Envy is not caused externally by Mercedes dealerships. And violence is not caused externally by video games or movies. External stimuli certainly affect people and deeply psychological wounded certainly conditions people. And a culture of violence gives permission to be violent or to be desensitized. But the instinct and choice to act out in violence comes from the heart. And uh, I, th- I think there are a bunch of places in Scripture you can go to see that. It says, third, Jesus encourages us to live bravely in the face of violence. And fourth, Jesus mandates a response mm-hmm. to violence. And I want to kind of end with this. Yeah, Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the Cost of Discipleship says, The followers of Jesus have been called to peace. When he called them, they found their peace, for he is their peace. They are told that they must not only have peace, but make it. And to that end, they renounce all violence and tumult. John Stalt in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount says, Now peacemaking is a divine work for peace means reconciliation. And God is the author Mm. of peace and reconciliation, which I would love to talk about this another time too, because I think so often, you know, we've, we've sort of married, like we often say uh, the empire and the cross. And sometimes it's really, really difficult for me to picture uh, Jesus uh, condoning or mandating the types of violence that sometimes we enact in the name of Jesus. And I just think that's, that's really upside down.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, so, Uh, We would love to hear your feedback. What do you do with Jesus
1: both his words and actions Uh, in in our culture. What does that look like to follow Jesus as Lord uh, when it comes to this? I'm just thinking you and I need a list. We we always we love to say things like I want to get back to this. We got to come back to this.
2: Yeah, I think our producer is supposed to be keeping. We did an ongoing
1: there? list, and then we need to do just do a week called like uh, catching back up <laughs> the stuff we've said we're going to do. <laughs> Being accountable with Brian and Ian. Oh <laughs> uh, well, that's good stuff. We're glad you're joining us today, for Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. This is the Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Good AM 1160 Hope for Your Life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you with us today. So Burger King, you Burger King fan in general? I'm not not a Burger King fan. I don't really. I'm not not a Burger King fan. If you were driving down the road uh... and there was a McDonald's and a Burger King and you were starving, which one would you turn into?
2: I'm on by. Am I
1: by myself? You're by yourself. Burger King, Burger King, yeah. Burger King or Wendy's. <sighs>
2: Wendy's has that chili, though, man. <laughs> You're what Wendy's chili? <laughs> okay. chili's so the good. The four for four is normally where I go oh, Wendy's, though. Oh, man. Yeah. If Arby's is in the mix, Arby's wins every time. Really? Yeah. Wow. A, our producer is making faces
1: at you. You can't see behind your back. I would not choose Arby's. That's fine. Just for roast beef? You're entitled to be wrong. Is that a roast beef thing for you? Of
2: course it's a roast beef thing.
1: It's so So, good. When I grew up much like (laughs) Arby's, where I grew up, especially in the East Coast, we had Roy Rogers. Did you have Roy Rogers? Yeah. I I don't think we had one, but I've had it before. It was, uh, that was, that was some good roast beef. Rallies? You ever have rallies? Never heard of
2: it. What? Nope. Oh my goodness! Let's just do this for a second. So when
1: my daughter and I went to California back in June for a wedding, we I made a point to go in and out burger because everyone said it's the greatest thing. It was okay. It
2: was yeah, good. it's right. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'm not sure it's worthy of the way most Californians speak. No. of it. <laughs> it's the allure of the. We should we should ask everyone that. What's your like go to fast food restaurant? Yes, why? Yes, Put the,
1: put that on the poll, John. <laughs> and some yeah. of
2: those things are time specific. If it's like late at night, there are days uh, I'm like, oh, I need some Taco Bell. Uh, oh, so
1: man. I think. Fifteen pounds of me in college was from just two a.m. Taco Bell runs. That's a gross way to describe it. <laughs> like most people go to college and they they get like the freshman fifteen from right. drinking too much alcohol at Wheaton, you know, where, where there wasn't a lot of alcohol going around. It was uh, it was just Taco, Taco Bell, Bell. And
2: Dunkin' Donuts runs after Dunkin midnight. Dunkin' Donuts that uh, does that fit in the fast food because they have a lot of food options now. I don't mean to talk about this so long. But increasingly,
1: <laughs> increasingly. Well, you might be wondering why we're talking about this other than we're both clearly hungry right now. Yeah, and, no kidding. Uh, that is. This Burger King's uh, Burger King's Burger King is now <laughs> offering a plant-based Impossible Whopper Woo! that launched nationwide this month. It says Burger King is bringing its vegan Impossible Whopper nationwide starting August eighth. So it had already happened. The nation's second-largest burger chain began testing the plant-based burger from Impossible Foods at locations in St. Louis in April. Those Burger King locations saw traffic outperform national averages by eighteen and a half percent this month, so people liked it. Uh, so here is the question for you. Would you uh, not not on a dare or anything, but out of like, you know, I want one would you ever order an
2: impossible whopper? No no no, but my my wife really likes black bean burgers and turkey burgers okay. and you know every once in a while because we're often eating together. Should we go have a bite? I will say there have been multiple occasions. where I'm like, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. But given the option, though, I'm sure. like, no, nah, I'm, I'm
1: having a burger. So you alerted me to the fact that for most people, this is a fun conversation. Like, oh, would I eat a plant-based burger? Sure. No, I wouldn't. Uh, but for some people, this is more of a life or death scenario and more of a mis- issue of salvation. And so we, the clip we're about to play, I have not heard. You found it. <laughs> I can't tell if it's going to be funny or disturbing, uh, but it is this a. Will be fun. This it is, is be fun. I believe, a a Christian TV host, a TV preacher or something, a pastor, yeah, a pastor speaking about um, vegetarian hamburgers, which I've never preached on. Um, oh, you got to get with the times, man. <laughs> so <laughs> it's all the rage. So out there, you're going to hear this for the first time. I'm hearing this for the first time. This is not from our producer. This is from Ian. So uh, I am I am very excited to hear this TV uh, pastor preacher about vegetarian
3: hamburgers. When you go to your favorite fast food restaurant, you're going to be eating a fake hamburger. You're going to go to the grocery store and buy a pound of fake hamburger or a fake steak, and you won't know that it was grown in some big corporation's laboratory. This is the nightmare world that they're taking us into. They're changing God's creation. Why? Because they want to be God. They want to do exactly what Lucifer did before the flood. It's why God destroyed it. He said he regretted that he ever made mankind. Because they were destroying his creation. The Bible says God is coming back to destroy those who are destroying the earth. So God is an environmentalist. He takes this very seriously. He created this planet. He created the universe. And he's watching these Luciferians destroy his planet. Destroy the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom change human DNA. Why? They want to change human DNA so that you can't be born again. Mm. That's where they're going with this, to change the, the DNA of humans so it will be impossible for a human to be born again. They, they want to create a race of soulless creatures on this planet. Sorry, I need to stop laughing. A
1: race of soulless creatures from the vegetarian hamburger. I want to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Go right ahead. So I kind of feel like that guy just started talking and he just kept going. He didn't know where to end it. We've all been there as speakers before. <laughs> They're <laughs> like, hey, Bob, we're live in three. I... All right. Veggie hamburgers. So do you think that that was at all satirical? Or are we going with that was
2: 100%? That, no, think that was real. He was speaking truth uh, for himself. Yeah. Yep. And I will say, credit where credit is due. I actually do think that God really cares about the environment way more than we often as Christians talk about it. I think he absolutely cares that we care for the planet and for animals and the environment and all those things. So to that end, I think right on, man. And then it sort of veers a bit from there. Uh, I'm curious hearing it for the first time. What were your thoughts besides the fact that you thought it might be satirical? I just am. TV preachers are crazy, man. Like, that is such. Is there any wisdom, though? Is there any ounce of truth we're saying about something, something we, how do I word this? Something we eat making it impossible for us to be born again? No. Is there any line of reasoning where that's true in your mind? No. I don't, do you? No. No, I'm just, I was really curious. I didn't know if you were setting a trap for me No, no, not a trap, not a trap. I'm just, you know, because uh, he's, I imagine he's a smart guy and, you know, has apparently like a huge platform. How do, what, what line of reasoning would you have to do, would you have to walk down
1: to get to that conclusion? I literally don't know. Like when he started talking about halfway through, I was going, I can't even follow what he's saying. (laughs) Like that. Because what about people who are just
2: vegetarians? yeah exactly and don't eat real burgers well, I think his biggest issue is the the modified stuff the laboratory creations that for him is where the soulless creations so starts.
1: that's where I thought he was going at first like you're we're we're opening the door to these big bad corporations to like in. Like, well, she's got a point there, too, for sure. So I was a little I don't agree with him, but I could see where he was going now that we're moving away. They could do it with regular meat, obviously, yeah, too. Right, but right. But if you want to be a conspiracy theorist with big, bad corporations. But then when the point was so that we would be soulless and couldn't be born again, I, I feel like there As if is, that was the chief motive. I feel like there is some lack of understanding, in my view. Humbly, I would submit uh, to how
2: salvation and the soul. It all works. Yeah. And right. So. That's that's wild. And it sounded like there were people there agreeing with them like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Okay, so like in the 30 seconds we have left, actually, you sort of teed it up. What would you say in response to that to someone who heard it and is legitimately now concerned? Pastor Brian, is that how salvation works? How would you respond to the person who's legitimately concerned by sentiments like this? I would say what we
1: eat has nothing to do with what we're it it doesn't remove our soul. Like I, I literally don't know how to respond because it's like. How does the burger either how does a real burger either give us a soul or take away our right, soul? Right, right. And I would just try to take them away from the, the guy's speech and talk about, you know, the, the good news of the gospel and talk about how the gospel works.
2: What would what would you say as you've uh, you've uh, chewed on this for I would long. love to respond Brian, but we are all no, I out of time. We are all out of time <laughs> here. Coming up next <laughs> We're talking about something, and I'm not quite sure what it is, but Brian Fromm will get us out of that and into the next segment here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
1: Welcome back to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Now this, this, this kind of gets you going. I feel like we're rocking. Welcome back to the common good.
2: (laughs) If that's the reaction this music gets, I would like us to never play that music again. (laughs) (laughs) I just,
1: I really do talk. The the speed of my talking is determined by what we come back with. You're like an
2: auditory chameleon. Ooh. Hmm. I played bass in auditory chameleon. (laughs) I wish. Those guys Rock. I wish. Or they don't. I don't know.
1: <laughs> so as we've talked, uh, most days, if you're with us, we like to uh, p- uh, sprinkle in some good stories, some feel-good stories, because sometimes it could just feel heavy. Right? Sprinkle it like we're baking a cake. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just did a guy who said, you're going to hell because you're having a vegan burger. But No,
2: I don't even think you can go to hell because you don't have a soul. Good point, so good point. You're, you're, he's a, yeah. If
1: you're really confused by that, please pod- go to the podcast. You're going to want to hear that one. <laughs> Uh, not for what we say, but for what that guy said. But um, but we came across this story. We wanted to read it uh, and talk about it because it's just it's just a good story. And like we said, I think it was yesterday, we said part of our goal here at the show is to highlight good things. So you don't get so overwhelmed all the time thinking everything's bad around us. But instead, we see some good things going on. So <clears throat> let me read it for us. It is out of Georgia. A little boy from Georgia is going viral for the shirt that he wore on his first day of school. WCNC reports that Blake Rajan's Rajan's mom Nikki owns her own personalization business and told her son she would make him any kind of shirt for the first day of school at North Fayette Elementary. Now if your mom had asked you and I'll put anything on a shirt for the first day of school. What would you have put there? I'm not allowed to say on the what this kid did. Especially not at his age, my goodness. He thought for a while, she said, and said, Will you please make me a shirt that says, I will be your friend for all the kids who need a friend to know that I'm here for them, she said. Never underestimate your kids' heart for others. I love my sweet Blake, his mom said. Nikki said that Blake has himself experienced bullying and hard times at school. Before she sold several shirts like Blake, since posting the photo, I told him that there are some people who are ordering his shirt, and he said, "Oh, that's good because more and more people are going to have more and more friends." he yes. said, "Like what that's, a great story! What so a good story! I love that so much." Yeah. Uh, so, what do you what do you think is going on in the soul and the mind of a kid who says, "I want to put
2: that on a t shirt"? I mean, it's it's honestly a lot of what. They teach us in pastoral counseling to to help people recognize that in a lot of ways, sometimes the most painful part of their story could be the most life-giving part of someone else's. Mm. You know, the fact that the mom identifies, he didn't just have this thought out of thin air, like he'd been the recipient of bullying, and we don't know what that bullying looked like, but all we know is that he experienced it, and something in his mind flipped on and was like, wait a minute, I don't want other people to feel the way that I felt. If I can somehow create a bridge, if I can somehow take proactive action, I, I think we... Lose this sentiment. I think the older that we get, yep. I think there is something about the innocence of a kid that's like, wait a minute, all right, that because I think I think what often adulthood does does is it makes retaliation and vengeance that much more attractive. Mm. And rather than, and I don't know all the details. I know the kid's not a saint, yep. But the very fact that his impulse after being the recipient of bullying is like, I don't want other people to feel that way, and like makes a move to be compassionate, to build a bridge, to share empathy. I just think. I I love stories like this because to me it shows how much wisdom children have that we often overlook, mm. and even the way that we set up the story is like, oh, it's a feel good story. I think it's way more than just a feel good story. I think it's I think it's counterintuitive. I think it's countercultural. I think it's um it's and when it's in a lot of ways it's just modeling the way of love and grace embodied. Where like we were talking earlier, sometimes our words don't match our actions. Where we could say, hey, it's about love and grace and standing with the marginalized and then you actually look at the way you spend your time and you're like, well, I don't actually yeah. do anything about that. I just post it on Twitter, this kid, what an opportunity for the mom. I actually really like this, um, this tradition that she has of like offering to make a shirt for him. I want to <laughs> do this with my kids. Like, all right, put anything on a shirt. Now ours will just be like puffy paint on a, <laughs> on a thrift store <laughs> shirt. It won't be in yeah, any way as yeah. cool as this one, but I just love the kid's sentiment because I was kind of joking about it, but if I were in his place at this age, I would have come up with some dumb joke yep. or some cartoon character that I love, like something pretty. If we did it now, surfacy. we'd come up with some dumb yeah, joke. Yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> but for his, yeah, his willingness to see that as an opportunity to like bring compassion to his school in yep. a place that we all know could use a little more compassion I just, I mean, props to him, props to his family. I just think this is a really cool story.
1: And I think one of the more interesting parts of the story is that other people are now ordering the shirt. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, the "I will be, I will be your friend" shirt, and I do wonder um, what impact it had for other little kids. Like elementary school could be a tough place. Middle school is terrible. Yeah, it's no it kidding. Could be terribly uh, bad place, um, and where kids can be lonely and bullied or ostracized. I wonder if other little kids came up to him and were like oh okay like that's a kid that'll be my friend i I wonder the effect that it had um on other people and uh but like you said it does come out of some sadness the fact that any elementary school kid is experiencing any sort of bullying is is always tragic to me it's always so sad like You always want to know, like, oh, man, it's going to get better. Like, You're in elementary school. It's going to be okay. But, man, it's so hard at that age to to experience anything like that.
2: Well, and kids also have, I think, more awareness of the pain around them than we give them credit. I think part of what makes adults um, struggle in areas of compassion and empathy is because our brain is just clouded with so many other things. Not even bad things. I don't think it's because people walk around wanting to be mad at the driver in the lane next to them or wanting to, you know, be angry at their boss. I think, I think we have so much that crowds out our capacity to actually pay attention to. I think if we really spent 24 hours off our phone, paying attention to the faces and bodies of people around us, Mm. we would really realize like, Oh man, this person seems exhausted. This person seems stressed. This person seems like they're living in fear. Like I, I even, this is not at all the direction I was hoping to go, but like uh propaganda, the the, uh, hip hop artist and, and poet, he, uh, shared on Twitter a couple days ago that he was on a flight and was perceiving like the body language of the girl and the bro, I think right in front of him. And they ended up like, um, saving her from sex trafficking. Like they alerted somebody and it's a whole long Twitter thread, but like, yeah, it turns out she was being trafficked on this flight and he had just sort of happened to pay pay attention. And it's not always going to be that heroic. It's not always gonna be that extreme, but like, it makes me wonder what do we miss by not paying attention to the people in our lives, not just our nuclear family, right? That seems obvious, and sometimes we struggle even with that. But, yeah. like, children, I think, have a, an incredible capacity to, like, wait a minute, why is this person sad? Have you ever had a kid ask you a question about somebody else? Yeah. And you're like, I didn't even notice them. I had no, I just think they have different eyes. And I think That's it's good. part of why Jesus is often saying, yeah, the kingdom of heaven like is, is actually much more like this than you think. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by this kid's story because it isn't just cute and sweet. It Really, maybe, legitimately, was like, Love and hope for another student that really needed it. Yeah, because
1: I could see people buying like, you know, when you go to the boardwalk or the Dells or something where they sell silly shirts and uh, you could see all these people want to buy a shirt that says, I will be your friend because it's almost ironic and funny. But he gave the reason for all the kids who need a friend to know that I am here for them. Uh, Like, that's not just good for kids or adults. That's Jesus language right there. right? right, Right. It's exactly what you just said. it so well, too. Like, we don't recognize even what's going on around us and people, because we're so preoccupied with our own stuff, with our phones, with our own schedules, uh, that, that there are people all around us who need a friend to know that we are here for them. Like, that's what it means to be the church, what it means
2: to be empathetic yep. as a human, uh, to see what people need around you. Well, and I, so I just Googled while you were looking, too. They've now sold hundreds of these shirts. Wow. And a portion of the proceeds go to Real Life Center, a community outreach center. Uh, connected to dogwood church in tyrone georgia so oh, good for them it's amazing to get you one of these shirts i would love one of these shirts. <laughs> sign me up
1: <laughs> first hours in the books free Ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. this is the common good am 1160 hope for your life
0: it's time for a conversation about the things we share in common our common hopes our common fears our common struggles Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins.
1: Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can now find us on Twitter. What? Where can they find us on Twitter? At (laughs) Twitter.com. Common Good Talk. Common Good Talk. You can find us on Twitter. Go ahead and follow
2: us there. And... uh... I think you're supposed to. I don't want to say this over the air. At. I, yeah. <laughs> at. Common good I talk. I don't want to say anything. It's like harken back to Facebook days. Like, Facebook.com. The Facebook.com. Forward dot com. <laughs> slash. Is it a forward slash? So we to did an just last week, right? I don't. Well, argument. That's a little strong. Discussion. It was barely even that. It was mostly us just going, is it forward? Is it backward? How, how old you, are we? How old are we? <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone else was thinking. Yeah. Wait, how old are these guys? I
1: at, thought he said he had
2: babies at home.
1: At Common Good Talk on Twitter, you can find us there. You can call us 312-660-2594. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast: Google Play, Apple Podcast, Spotify. Should I stop there? You, just, uh, you should have stopped a, a good deal
2: earlier. Stitcher. <laughs> You can find our podcast. Go ahead, rate. I want to find all the clips of you doing that riff because I think they're all identical. Uh, subscribe, rate, review. We thank you for listening to our podcast. You're just going to power through, just pass that. It's <laughs> yeah. always, and I wish people could see your face too. It's always a point. Spotify? <laughs> I just wonder how people feel listening to, like, why is he saying Spotify like that? <laughs> because it's more with a question Spotify. mark. Spotify. <laughs> One of these days you're going to actually research to find out if it's true before just telling everybody. I'll it if,
1: will i you? will do it today. I will do it today. I will research that today. Well, Uh, If you've been with our show for the six, seven months that we've been doing the show, uh, we have certain go to people. And uh, one of those is a pastor out of Nashville uh, who we still haven't had on. We need to get this guy on. Yeah. Uh, His name is Scott Sauls. And I would he is a great Twitter follow. I would encourage you to follow Scott Sauls. S.A.U.L.S. is how you spell his last name. Uh, He also uh, blogs uh, frequently at scottsauls.com. That's scottsauls.com. And that's, uh, he just wrote a blog a couple days ago, about a week ago, that I want uh, to touch on because I think it is so important, the topic he brings up. The title is this, Shame, the image of God, and gaining freedom to love. And let me just read the first two paragraphs uh, and then you can jump in. He writes, The longer I'm a pastor, the more convinced I become that every person, regardless of her or his situation is fighting a hidden battle with shame, shame, the greatest enemy of God's grace. And also the greatest inhibitor of truth, justice, and human love is something that must be addressed. If a dysfunctional human community is to become functional, healthy, and mutually supportive shame, the terrifying sense that something is deeply wrong with us, keeps us preoccupied with ourselves and inattentive, to the needs of others. Shame tells us what we need to that we need to fix ourselves before we can focus on serving others. It tells us we must get our act together before we can ourselves act on behalf of friends and neighbors and especially the poor, the lonely, the oppressed and people on the margins. Before we can give attention and energy to paving paths of flourishing for others, it, we must first develop our own sense of purpose and our own sense of self. Charity starts at home, we tell ourselves. If we don't take care of ourselves first, then we won't be able to care effectively for others. If we don't get healthy ourselves, we will be limited in our ability to invest in anyone besides ourselves. There is just so much there. Agreed. Thoughts. (laughs) Give me your thoughts about... uh, Do you think he's right when he says shame is the greatest enemy of God's
2: grace? Um... I always hesitate to say something is the greatest of or the Mm -hmm. number one. I think it is much higher than we tend to give it credit for. And I think, honestly, the more that I interact with people from other parts of the world, they deal with shame much differently than we do in the West. And I think particularly, you know, think of like honor shame cultures that we don't have any context for. I I do think, though, and Brene Brown writes about this pretty extensively, that part of the impulse of shame is hiding Mm. And I think that there's a lot of great metaphor and word pictures in scripture that talk about um, how healing is when we drag stuff out into the light. And I think she says it really, really brilliantly and Daring Greatly. She says, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. Mm. And I think that's where it starts, right? I think that's honestly, that's almost a modern way of saying uh, if we confess our sins, we are healed, right? There's, there's something about this owning of the broken parts of our story that shame wants nothing to do with. Shame wants us to continue in hiding. Shame wants us to keep us disconnected. And I think part of what I have found about the beautiful upside down way of grace, because so often in Christian circles, we only speak about grace as like the vehicle to which we get to heaven when we die, right? right? That's the big G grace. It's the gift. It's the, it's the charism that we're just given and, it doesn't really have any effect on us here. I think the more that we're transformed by grace, the less shame we feel about our need for it. Mm. I think the more that you really yeah. experience the, the transformational work of grace, there's still sadness about the stuff that we've done and the stuff, the parts of our lives that are toxic to us or toxic to others. I think there's still a, a general sadness about that, but it, but the shame loses some of its grip. You're yeah. like, Oh, wait a minute my identity isn't found in like how perfect you think I am or how clean my track record is. That's the whole point of grace. And so when I really not only just like get that in a cerebral sense, but allow my heart to be transformed by it and shame, the tentacles of shame, like loosen their grip because oh, I can own this stuff yeah. that I'm really bad at this. And I really screwed up here. And like, I have some hard stuff over there. That's pretty ugly. And I, Again, that it still brings me some sadness because I think it it is it's bad for me and the people that I love and it creates a disconnect yeah, between God yeah. and I. But but the shame piece to me that the impulse to like hide and run away and keep it in the shadows, um, I, I just think starts to lose its power. And so when we continue to feed shame, mm, that's good. I think in a lot of ways it is sort of the the antithesis of grace because. Grace at its core is about not what we can do or don't do. It's a, it's about what Christ has done. And that is so really, really freeing. And it bumps me out when we only talk about it as like a vehicle or ticket to like a future place when we die. That's that's really good, man. And shame makes us feel unworthy of God's love uh, and the
1: love of others. Let me uh, near the end. Saul's writes this because of the way that Jesus valued you on the cross and because you are the image of God. You are among the holiest objects that will ever be presented to God, to your fellow human beings, and even to yourself in the mirror. Is this enough? And will this be enough to relieve you of your own hidden battle with shame? Will it be enough to free you from a love hindering, tiring preoccupation with yourself? That Those are such important questions. Will the fact that you are a child of God in Christ, that you're created in the image of God, that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus... Uh, is that enough for you? And, and I think a lot of times in our minds it is, but in the way we live day to day, it's not. Um, how, in your opinion, are, are those questions kind of at the foundation of this? Is he right when he's getting, th- to be asking those questions?
2: I think so. I mean, if you go all the way back to the garden, right, that is the, the first impulse, I think, of this disconnect is that they hide. It's yeah. one of the most heartbreaking passages in scripture when God says, where are you? You know, I think mm. God knows where they are. I think what he's really asking is where's your heart? Where'd you go? Like we, we've been in concert, we've been in communion and this disobedience, this disconnect, this, this breaking of Shalom uh, has now created distance, which I find so interesting that the distance wasn't initiated on God's part. It was on Adam and Eve's part. They're the Mm -hmm. ones that ran, they hid in their shame and made a covering for themselves. And even in their shame, when I never really noticed this part, but God makes a covering for them, he makes a better covering for even in their disobedience. He goes, I'm going to still provide for you. I'm going to yep. still love you. I'm gonna still care for you. And that I think is what begins to really shrink our, our shame that in the, it's kind of like what Brene said. When we really have you ever experienced that before, when you like mm-hmm. share the deepest, darkest parts of yourself, maybe with a spouse or a close friend and they respond with love. Yeah. There's a part of you that's like, this is too good to be true. Yeah. I can't believe this person is choosing to love me in this moment when I feel all the weight of shame. And I think the more that we like step into that, and encourage our churches and our communities to be places where that's okay. I just think pe- that is where the transformative work of the Holy Spirit really begins to actually take root. Yep. Because we experience, oh my gosh, they had every right to disown me, to walk away, to shame me, and they didn't. They met yep. me with grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I just think, I just think that's 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 it. That's the thing.
1: Absolutely. Let me close this by reading. Uh, just man, I love this blog. I'd encourage you to go to scottsalls.com. Because Jesus took on himself the full freight of our shame, we are no longer under pressure to exhaust ourselves with endless and futile efforts to make something of ourselves. We now have an inner resource that can liberate us from preoccupation with self. We now have an inner resource. uh, We now have an inner resource that frees us to treat all people as our equals. We now have an inner resource that endearingly and compellingly invites us to join God in his mission to love, and then he ends his whole thing by saying, "May it be so." Uh, we we long for you to experience that uh, that freedom that comes only in the grace of God. Well, you're listening to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, you can find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. You can find old shows also at 1160hope.com. Uh, we are grateful that you choose to join us on whatever venue you do, and uh, we'd love to hear your feedback, whether it be on Facebook, at Twitter, uh, at other places. Well, uh, found a blog. You found a blog uh, by somebody by the name of Ali Kassaza. Uh and you and I, both with kids of different ages, I think, found this somewhat interesting. It's called Why I Let My Kids Feel the Weight of the World. Let me highlight a couple parts of it uh, and then let you react. She tells the story of her son uh, being really little, asking, can I be a guitar player when I grow up? And she said, I answered yes and watched his eyes light up as he gazed out the window. But then I said this, you can be whatever you want when you grow up and you should do what makes you feel the most alive, but find a way to change the world with it because that is your responsibility. And then she goes through uh, about how it's his responsibility Uh, And she said, I thought of the Jonathan Edwards quote I had read once, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs, that what we do on this earth should last for eternity. Otherwise, it's pointless. Uh, It's why purpose, she says, is her favorite word. I want my kids to know that they have a purpose and what they do will last for eternity. They have a legacy to leave behind and I expect them to rise to that occasion. So then she begins to explain herself. She says, some might say they're just children. Let them be little. Or that I'm being too hard on them. I disagree. I'm letting them be little. I'm pretty big on that. But letting them in on their purpose doesn't make them grow up. It sets the stage for a small person to grow into a big person who knows exactly why they're here. And that's what I want for them, to know exactly why they're here, that they matter, and that they play a crucial role in changing the world in the kingdom of God. I want to put the weight of the world on their shoulders because that's where it is, whether they know it or not. The future generation is the shape the world will take when we are no longer here. I'd be doing them as well as society a huge disservice to shield them from their responsibility. She writes, I don't want my children to be selfish adults. I don't want them thinking that life is about them or even that it's about their happiness. I believe that's a big misunderstanding in the world. The responsibility, she writes, of changing the world gives kids an automatic purpose and young adults need purpose. When they've been infused with it from a young age, they are less likely to doubt it or be unsure of themselves. They will have been taught that life isn't about them. It's about using your passion and your talents to make the world kinder, better, Brighter life is about being Jesus to people. What do you think about uh, kind of her strategy of what she's saying about parenting here?
2: You know, I'm a little torn on this one, to be honest, because I find myself at some parts wanting to say Amen, another part is saying I don't, I don't know that I would go that route. And here's why I Bef- say that.
1: Before you say that, can I tell you that as I was reading this, I read it before.
2: I went, I'm really torn on this. Oh, so we're together. I'd like to hear. Twi- go ahead, twinsies. Go ahead. Um, so one of the things that I find kind of laced throughout this is this. Subtle connection between their value and the role they play in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really dangerous. Mm. I think, and I don't know that she would even agree with this, but in in her writing, you know, she said, and that's what I want for them to know exactly why they're here, that they matter and that they play a crucial role in changing the world and the kingdom of God. I think all of those things are true, but kids don't matter because they play a crucial role because they're going to change the world. And I think to get that order out of whack can create some really dysfunctional Christianity, some very okay. dysfunctional adults, uh, many of whom we know or have even been ourselves that see our identity inextricably tied to the sum of our accomplishments. Yeah. Unpack uh, the
1: dysfunctional. What What is some of the fruit of that? I 100% agree with you. Unpack that a little bit. I think bit more. some of
2: the fruit of it is uh, an inability to rest, an mm-hmm. inability to see your identity as separate from what you can do or accomplish in the world. Mm-hmm. I know that if you take that. Sometimes to its logical end, people fear that it will just create lazy adults, which is kind of part of what she's railing against. And I'm saying all of this as kind of a hypocrite because I, I just saw this on my uh, Facebook feed from a year and a half ago, and I posted something about the first time that I held my son, I whispered in his ear, you're going to change the world, and I hope to never stop whispering hope and courage into the ears of my children. So that I get the, all of the sentiment that she's writing here that I want to sort of, like, what was the Jonathan Edwards stamp eternity on their eyeballs? Yeah, I yeah. want them to think eternally in that regard i also want to be very very careful though to not draw this one-to-one line that you are valuable because you do Mm. things or because you accomplish things because the opposite then can very easily be inferred because i failed at this then i lack value or my value is diminished i want to make very very certain that my children never ever make that confusion. and i can't control that like i'm sure other voices and other infrastructures are going to speak into that but uh, I do like the sentiment, though, that says, I mean, later in the article, she's even talking about asking them what their dreams are and then saying, OK, how are you going to use that to change the world? I like the idea of like thinking through the lens of don't don't just think of a talent or an interest and then, you know, letting that terminate on yourself. Like, h- all right, how are you going to use that passion? How are you can use that gift to impact the world, to change the people around you? Um, but I do think sometimes. We can create a sort of like commencement speech reality for our kids where mm. if it's not changing the world, yeah. then it doesn't really matter. I think so much of the gospel is lived out in the ordinary and yeah. the common and the everyday spaces that we occupy. And when we only teach our kids to shoot for the stars, reach for your dreams, yeah. we miss all sort of like the, the sacred ordinary around us. And I think that can create some very dichotomous living, too. Th- that's really good, man.
1: I, I feel like one of the things that stood out to me. I like the premise in general of what she's saying here, uh, the the line that set to me. And because I've been uh, it's something that I've really wrestled with. I have preached more sermons where one of the takeaways was go change the world. Like mm, interesting. And I, I began to feel like that was not helpful. Uh, and so it was just a matter of language for me. It became you. You just use the language. You said, make an impact. Change your world. <laughs> yeah, right, change, right. right, Be Jesus to the people around you, because I felt like. Uh, And to set that up for our kids to be like, your goal is to go. Some kids might change the world, but for the vast majority of us, we're called exactly what you said to go be Jesus in the day to day activities of exactly what she said. You know, playing the guitar in a band or being a plumber or whatever else, being everyday missionaries. And uh, but I do like that she is looking to take her kids from an early age, take their focus off of themselves uh, and not shield them from anything that the world might, might might bring their way and also not kind of placate them like, oh, it's all about you. It's all about you. But she's from an early age trying to say, hey, the world is bigger than you. Like there, there's people in need. You you have a mission that we don't probably talk to our kids about until they're young adults or yeah. uh, they, they got to get, uh, oftentimes as kids, they get the message, everything's about you. Right. And then they hit a certain age and you go, oh, it's not actually all about you. And she's saying, let's plant those seeds at
2: a much earlier age, which I, again, I really appreciate. I think, yeah. you know, I think it's an Ecclesiastes where he says he's, he's planted eternity in the hearts of everyone. Yeah. Like that is, there is something to that. The other thing that I've recently begun to really struggle with uh, and it's a sentiment I'm sure both you and I have said from the pulpit is to be Jesus to people. Mm. I think sometimes the subtle narrative there is that I can't ever be broken or I can't ever struggle because I it's I'm Jesus. I got to be Jesus to yeah, people, so I can't admit that I'm struggling in my marriage or I'm struggling in my finances or I'm unhappy with my job or you know any of those things. Yep. Yep. And again, I don't think anyone saying be Jesus to people would say those things. I just think, man, this is sort of our theme for today. Words matter, Words matter. and what we say, and and maybe even more importantly, what we don't say. With, with our kids, with our churches, with our families uh, has an impact, I think on how people develop and to create categories that says um, even Jesus wept, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe we still say be Jesus to people, but don't forget Jesus was fully present, uh, fully able to experience a spectrum of emotions and sorrow and sadness. Like yeah. um, being Jesus to people doesn't mean being this hyper stoic, never let him see a sweat mm-hmm. sort of religious figure. It's, it's weeping with those who weep it's rejoicing with those who rejoice and everything in between. And that's, I think maybe, you know, uh, illustrating a more holistic image of what yep. being used to people looks like. Actually, maybe is more helpful. Oh, that's really good. Is there another phrase that comes to mind for you? I'm putting it on the spot. No, it, I like the phrase. I are, just think you packed it well there. I, just, I think the, I, I like the phrase. I really do. Um, but hey, I don't know that I would necessarily even word it differently. I would just want to make sure that I'm, I'm becoming less and less impressed by like, 50 truisms and bumper sticker statements. Cause they rhyme, even though I probably use them every Sunday. Like I, but in a sermon context, you have space to unpack it. Yes. So when you say yes. hands and feet of Jesus to someone, I mean, for example, someone who's never been to church, like what is he yeah, talking? And then yeah, we're going to yeah. eat his flesh and drink his blood later. Like yeah. this is a vampire church. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> we just have to be careful. I think about making sure that we unpack sentiments and terminology that to those of us who grew up in the church seem really obvious um i think we're seeing more and more that those things do require context i yeah. think that's that's
1: helpful i think the the point of the show today is words matter it's uh-huh. kind of the common theme here one more word in there that i don't know it has great meaning but but it's been so overused in our in our evangelical world that it's still it's kind of bristles the word purpose yeah I right just kind of ah. Oh, really? I do. Let's talk about that some Nothing, other time. Not, and it's not that the word is bad. It's just how much we use it, of vision and purpose and this and that. But and what's the glorification of it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, that's good. We'd encourage you to. We'll, we'll post this, or maybe we already have. Uh, we'll post this, and you can read this blog. We would love your feedback on it at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk more parenting. Uh, another uh, blogger who answers the question, what to say to little kids instead of say sorry? We're going to discuss that next here on The Coming Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hello, and welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. I'm The smile proud.
2: on your face right now is worth it. Because it was just a good Ian Simpkins bringing us back right That's there. not how, how I... Hello. No, no, I don't say John, hello. Yeah, okay, good point. Good point. <laughs> just trying to, trying to change it up like you do. No, well, I appreciate you changing it up.
1: Props but, to you. Well howdy. Done. Hello.
2: So. All right, well, that was getting weird.
1: Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Uh online at eleven sixty hope dot com podcast wherever it is you find your podcasts. And uh we're grateful for those of us those of you who podcast, go ahead and subscribe, rate review, and thank you for listening and doing that. We appreciate it. So we just talked about go ahead. No, go ahead. You're about to say something. I'm
2: not say it. I don't have anything to say. So, it. Nope. So we can do this for ten not, minutes. Nothing <laughs> about, not, I am happy to play that game. <laughs> I'm happy to go back and forth, back and forth. Uh,
1: We talked last segment about parenting, and we've got another one uh, here from offspring.com to say what to say when little kids, what to say to little kids instead of, quote, say sorry. And uh, I don't know if you're guilty of this. I was guilty of this all the time, probably still guilty, a little less when my kids were older. Uh, but, you know, you've got two little kids. If, if, uh, if your older son hurts your younger son when they're a little older, you know. Yeah, they're not there yet. I know. But when they're a little older, the impulse is just to be like, say you're sorry. Right. Say, which there's some value to that. Which what is we'll the, what is the value to that? Teaching them to apologize. I think teaching them the value that we expect apologies. We expect remorse. But that's what this author is getting into here a little yeah. bit. Uh, because uh, she writes this. She's talking about an author by the name of Heather Shoemaker in her book, It's Okay Not to Share and Other Renegade Rules for Raising Competent and Compassionate Kids. Oh, that seems. Uh, but she says about <laughs> about this whole robotic. That seems, that seems what? <laughs> seems like a crazy book. Uh, but this whole dance we do and we say, what do you say after they do something? And then they say, we're sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, And then all is good manners. We're teaching them. She says this children love the word. Sorry. Shoemaker explains as it magically lets them off the hook. It's a little like teaching kids to be hit and run drivers." She writes the problem with sorry solution is that many young children say preschool age haven't reached a stage of moral development to actually feel sorry. So parents are missing the key opportunity to teach real empathy shoemaker writes this young kids sometimes fool us they can mimic sorry and even cry when another child cries but most children are not capable of actually being sorry yet and so this this blog is trying to say that there is a better solution there are better solutions than just you looking at your kid and say say sorry to your sister yeah, say right. sorry to your brother right. uh, and that that might not be the most effective thing before we get into uh, some of these solutions, what do you think about you're heading into that age of kids? Uh, this whole tell your brother they're sorry. Is there any value in that or is that just kind of what we do to end the conversation?
2: Yeah, I, I think there's my wife and I were just having this discussion that, you know, mm-hmm. when the time and place, when is it right to say you don't actually get an explanation? This is just this is just dad. This is just mom saying yep. you got to do it. And um, also wanting to challenge some of that, though, I was definitely raised. Yeah, in a culture where that hey sometimes you don't you're six you don't get an explanation i'm just telling you this is yeah. the thing you have to do um but i also know that there are probably times where i'd like to have the wherewithal to say here's why we're doing this Or mm-hmm. here's but i also know i was a really smarmy six-year-old so i probably was not really wanting an explanation sometimes more than to be defiant and i she goes on to say that children differ and you may have an early bloomer but most children simply lack. The emotional and cognitive development to feel remorse. Remorse requires the ability to take another person's perspective and fully understand cause and effect. These skills are still emerging in young children. Expecting young kids to say sorry teaches them nothing more than a misguided lesson in sequence: kick, say sorry, and move on. So <laughs> I think she's got a pretty a point. solid point there, actually. But um, you know, then there's questions of etiquette, and is yep. it still good to just kind of build into them the habit? But even as I use the word habit, I think. I don't want sorry to be a habit necessarily, though, because that certainly implies some sort of cognitive dissonance. Like, oh, I know that I'm supposed to do this thing and it helps me to continue to play or do whatever I want to do. And so I right. say this magic word. Right. So she offers some steps, but she does sort of clarify these are for like everyday accidents. So more extreme cases might require a different sequence of steps. But I actually, right. I think these steps are pretty helpful. All right. Let me give you the first one. Uh, Bring the kids together Sometimes when children
1: believe They're about to be in trouble They run Shoemaker explains If this happens You can put an arm around the child And say something like You need to come back here Uh, You hurt somebody Even if you didn't mean to do it She got hurt And you need to come back So telling them uh, They gotta deal with the situation
2: In front of them Yeah number two Tell the child who caused the accident What happened And be specific Even When what happened seems obvious, it needs to be pointed out to a young child. State the facts. Your shopping cart ran over her toe. Your hand knocked a cup of water onto her painting. You were dancing and your arm whacked your face Which is, again, kind of counterintuitive, like she's crying. You should be upset or you should be apologizing. But say here's here's actually what happened. Yep. And then three,
1: she says, describe what you see. Examining the facts of the scene helps kids develop empathy, emphasize, emphasize. I said empathize, Mm -hmm. emphasize the consequences of their actions for the other child or adult and be specific. Look, he's crying. There's a scratch on his arm. It must hurt. So kind of make sure they understand what happened.
2: Number four, this one's maybe pretty obvious model empathy for the hurt child. Just asking things like, are you okay? Um, Are you hurt? You know, kind of showing modeling that for your kids so that they know this is something to ask for. Next,
1: take action. While little kids may not fully understand remorse, they are good at taking action. They can run to grab a Band-Aid or an ice pack or help clean up the mess they made.
2: Help them take responsibility. I think that's a huge one. (laughs) Yeah, number six, make a guarantee. Shoemaker writes, reassurance that it won't happen again means something. Sorry, does not. To reestablish trust among the kids, she writes, have the child who caused the accident make a guarantee to the other child that she won't do it again. You can ask, are you going to hit him again? Or have her say the words, I won't hit you again. Which again is a step That makes sense in reading it, but I don't know that I would instinctually know to do that. And the last one here is model saying sorry in your own life. Eventually,
1: we do want kids to say sorry, but instead of making them say sorry, uh, Shoemaker writes that it's more effective to model saying sorry when you as a parent screw up. Just make sure your own apologies are meaningful. That Mm. means acknowledging the consequences of your actions and taking steps to make things better. For example, I'm sorry I forgot to bring your teddy bear to school today. Uh, you missed him during your nap time. I'm writing it down on my list, so I'll remember next time. Soon, kids say sorry
2: without prompting, and they will really mean That's it. pretty good. I am, uh, I'm really impressed by that last one because I can remember from a pretty early age how much it meant to me when our yep. parents would apologize. Like, hearing that apology yep. uh, broke a cycle in me in a really helpful way. Like, oh, you're holding yourself to the same standard where, you know, a lot of times in some parent, you know, it could feel like the Wild West, you are know, like I'm I'm the law and the executioner. And I think the uh, the modeling of a parent who, you know, some ways and I hear this sometimes where it's like, oh, I don't owe my kid an apology because they're my kid. And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe maybe you don't actually in a transactional sense owe them anything. Right. but You are always modeling for them. And what does that convey? Like you only need to show remorse or apology when you're little and then when you're an adult. I think that can create pretty selfish adults, too, or yes. pretty self-involved yeah. adults. And I think, I can't think of any specific instances, but I really, it does really resonate with me. The, the first couple of times I can remember consciously, oh, my parents are owning up to something. They're yeah. apologizing to us. And I remember thinking, they don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. They're still they're, they're still the mom parent. and dad. right? They're the parents. I remember really, really being appreciative of that. I'm sure I didn't show that appreciation at all, but that really, really stuck with me. And through adulthood, having teachers like a teacher apologizing or a professor in college even like hey Um, i i totally lost this or i didn't have my ducks in a row there like you don't owe me that you're the boss you're the uh, even bosses managers like there's something really really inspiring for me where people in authority choosing to lower themselves yeah i really screwed up and i'm sorry and believing them i I remember the first time i apologized to my kids
1: uh i'm assuming it was madeline because she's the oldest and it being really awkward for me (laughs) like really like i felt It felt awkward, Hmm. but knowing that it was really important—if she was ever going to understand what you know—hey, if mom and dad mess up, they apologize too. Yeah, right. This isn't just a one-way street. Um, I felt—I remember in the moment going, "This is important that I do this." And Hmm. man, it feels like a stretch to go to my five-year-old at the time or whatever. Right? Like, hey, I messed up, and dad. She was that young though. You think five? I'm guessing. Hmm. In my mind, she was that age-ish. And just explaining it to her. And good for you. I, I really appreciate this approach. Uh, here's the here's the struggle with this approach. Uh, it, you got to remain really calm. Yeah, right. And I right. know. So oftentimes when the tears are going and the right. siblings, especially are going back and forth, my blood pressure goes up. And I'm like, you say you're sorry. You go, you right. do right. this right now. And just right. Done. Yeah, right. Because this the, I believe everything she's writing and I'm just picturing it in the home of like just okay calming yeah we're gonna talk right. this out i'm like ooh, that's not how it works in my house
2: <laughs> well and it really is like playing long game versus short game My like short game in the same sense as i like just turn the tv on leave me alone whatever and, and i'm not saying the tv is always the wrong choice but yeah. it, it is really thinking through like you're saying how much harder is it to remain calm when you're in the midst of yes. a kid that got whacked in the face or something i think i think you're right on so coming up next we are gonna land this plane the
1: way we do every time uh, and that is just with craziness that our producer has found on the Internet. That is coming up next year on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the Web. Welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's the end of the show now. And the way we always do this is just crazy stories that have come from the minds Of our producer Both Keith Conrad And producer John Seems still trying to make it stick Producer John Oh you mean PJ? PJ yes (laughs) Uh, What did you call me yesterday? Was it like Was it Buck? Uh, no, you, I believe, used the
2: phrase buck naked. So we called you <laughs> producer buck. <laughs> People are pausing and going to yesterday's podcast right uh, now. Uh, what uh, happened uh, yesterday? Uh, before we jump into these
1: stories, let me read this for you. There are 52 great date suggestions in the ebook Date Night Ideas by Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, free from Focus on the Family. Just download it now from 1160hope.com. Keyword marriage 52 date ideas
2: man right on that's a lot of dates i mean it's the right amount of dates <laughs> one a week all right let's do this what are we doing internet craziness
1: what does that mean it means you turn that over you read it we haven't read these we're going to be insulted
2: if they're insulting Are there sound effects probably have we heard them yet most likely no, we haven't. Simpsons. Oh, I see. What you're <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. All right, we have not heard them today. That's true. Virginia man wearing TV on head caught on camera leaving old TVs on front porches. <laughs> what? i want to read that again man wearing tv on head caught on camera leaving old tvs on front porches residents living in a virginia neighborhood woke up to find free televisions on the doorsteps sounds like a great gift until you see the older box sets left at the homes he's committed to his trade said homeowner jim brooksbank no need to adjust that dial door doorbell surveillance (laughs) surveillance doorbell surveillance cameras captured the man The TV set on his head Laying an older TV set down On someone's front porch And just walking off He wants to be known As the TV Uh, Santa Claus I don't know Brooks Bank told The WTVR TV
0: Let us all bask In television's
1: Warm, glowing, warming glow Simpsons, you called it I called it California Bernie Sanders pledges to reveal info on aliens if he wins in 2020. Got my vote. Senator Bernie Sanders pledged that as president, he would disclose government information about aliens and unidentified flying objects. Sanders told podcast host Joe Rogan on Tuesday that his wife would, quote, demand he tell people about the mysterious phenomenon. Well, I tell you, my wife would demand I let you know, he told Rogan, who asked whether Sanders would disclose the information when rogan asked whether his wife was a ufo nut he said he she wasn't but that she was previously asked him about the information he might have as senator no she's not a ufo nut she goes bernie what is gonna go on uh, what is going on do you know do you have any access all right we'll announce it on the show
2: how's that sanders said
0: you can't suppress the truth the people have a right to know
2: roswell roswell that article just read so smooth it really didn't did. it just so readable. It really did. So it's like <laughs> They wrote it for me. <laughs> uh, all right, out of Africa. South African restaurant only serves food made from insects. Huh. I'm out. Uh, no thank you. A South African company is promoting sustainable protein alternatives with a pop-up restaurant serving only foods derived from insects. The insect experience, a pop-up located at the Good Food Hall in Cape Town, features only menu items that use various edible insects. As sources of protein, the pop-up is operated by Gourmet Grub, <laughs> a company founded by food scientist Leah Bessa and her partners. The company offers Entomilk, a milk alternative made from the black soldier fly, as well as dairy-free ice cream made from the milk. Just,
1: a uh Threw up in my mouth
2: a little bit. <laughs> uh, same, same here. So
1: are you are you eating some of that stuff, or are you eating the Impossible Burger that we talked about earlier
2: from oh, uh, Burger King? Yeah, give me the Impossible Burger. Impossible Burger. right. I mean, goodbye to my soul, but but <laughs> <yeah. laughs> hello <a load laughs> to my stomach. <laughs> oh, that's good. Hello to <laughs> my stomach,
1: Florida. Alexa, please. He is ca-
2: doing this on purpose, by the way. You always oh,
1: put the no Florida's doubt. now. No doubt. <laughs> Alexa, please call a bail bondsman. Oh, gosh. During an argument yesterday, a Florida woman s- struck her husband in the head with a thrown Amazon Fire TV cube, according to police, <laughs> who arrested her on domestic battery charge. As alleged in a probable cause affidavit, Ashley Moulinow and her husband began arguing Sunday due to Ashley not going to church with him. Uh, that's reason to fight. When Matthew Mullinow, age 34, returned post-services to the couple's Bradenton home, the pair resumed arguing over Ashley hiding his hiding his weed. <laughs> you did not see that one coming, did, did you? Sight unseen, he man. Was the virtuous Side one. Sight unseen. Yeah. <laughs> the dispute cops say turned physical when Ashley began throwing items at her husband. While some of the domestic projectiles just broke or spilled through the, ab- the apartment, two objects hit their mark. An Alexa cube and a metal drinking cup both struck Matthew on his face, leaving him with a cut on his chin and a large knot uh, knot on his
2: head. They're a fantastic couple. I love them. That one makes makes a lot of showings, too, doesn't it? All right, last but certainly not least, Canada. Men face charges and thefts of using cooking oil from restaurants. Two Mm -hmm. men from Quebec, which is a beautiful city, are facing charges related to alleged thefts of used cooking oil from restaurants in eastern Ontario. I have a friend that used to do this. Uh, that's true. Um, really? So they say the, yeah. Well, because people convert their cars to run on veggie oil. Gotcha. So it becomes, yeah. Uh, recently received at least two complaints that cooking oil was going missing from disposal bins outside local businesses. The recent arrests in the cases came Monday morning when police responded to a report of, suspicious vehicle, of a suspicious vehicle outside a restaurant in Ember, Ontario. A 39-year-old from Montreal and a 46-year-old from Laval, Quebec are facing five charges each, including two counts of theft under $5,000.
0: My retirement grease No! <laughs> that was really good. That would fit
2: R-
1: right on the nose. That was fun. That was good. Well, it's been another good day uh, here on The Common Good. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Hope you join us tomorrow from 4 to 6. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.